Wow, amen. Thank you, choir. Well, after the incredible events of last week's text, David versus Goliath, right? I mean, what a victory for the people of God. What a victory for the armies of Israel. What a victory as Yahweh showed his might over the pagan, quote-unquote, gods of the Philistines. And after those amazing events, the new darling of the army found that by the time the warriors had gotten back from Operation Elah, (laughs) Operation Giant Toppler, I don't know, one of them, Uh, They found there was a new hit single topping the top 40 charts of Israel. Turn to 1 Samuel 18, and you'll see that they had already begun writing a song about these military exploits. 1 Samuel 18, if you're just joining us, we're in a series going through the books of Samuel, and here we come to... Chapters 18, 19, and 20, and they they sort of flash back, and they show you some scenes, and then they, uh, almost like a movie camera, cutting back and forth. Look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel. See that? All the cities. This song had gone viral. Singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And here's the lyrics to the song. Saul has struck down his thousands. And Saul hears that and thinks, all right. You know, I like this song. Obviously, after the giant went down, we chased those Philistines. And King Saul has struck down his thousands. I like that. King Saul has struck down his thousands. King Saul. That's got a good beat. And he's thrilled until he hears the second verse. And David, his ten thousands. Okay, now we got a problem. (laughs) Now this isn't funny, he thinks. Now these women were not making a political statement. I don't think they intended to dig at Saul, but that's not how Saul saw it. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, well, they've, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. That's putting it mildly. Saul grows more and more jealous. Remember, he's dealing with darker and darker depression. David, you remember, is brought in as a musical therapist. Do you remember this? He's brought in to play the harp, and I'm collapsing some of the material. We won't have time to touch on every verse in these three chapters. But at one point, this darkness comes upon Saul and gets to the point of such depression. Do you remember it has violent episodes? Do you remember at one point he gets so violent, he takes his spear and he throws it at David? This happens multiple times. You would think at some point David would say, you know, I've had enough of this. <laughs> does it ever, do you ever wonder why does David remain in the court of Saul when there's been multiple attempts on his life? Well, I think we have lots of folks in here who are in the medical field or they work and give caregiving uh, at these uh, various uh, facilities and I think people understand when you're in therapy, when you're the therapist, you're dealing with people in pain. And so I think David says, here's a person in pain. So I'm not, we know when you're dealing with somebody in pain, a lot of times they're not in their right mind. And so they're they're lashing out at you, but you don't take it personally. You just realize, well, they're in pain. I think that's what David's doing. He says, well, you know, he's, he's, so he he, he tried to kill me. Okay. Uh, You know, it's not so much about me, but that's about, um, uh, uh, you know, what he's going through. Okay. Well, 
Saul realizes he's got to get rid of David, and he thinks, uh, if I can't kill him directly, maybe I'll, I know, I'll have him killed. And so you can read, he says, he offers his daughter, Mishal, in marriage for the gruesome bride price of a hundred dead Philistines. David not only prevails, but he brings back a gr- the gruesome trophy of these dead Philistines. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 18, and he doubles the bride price, 200. Saul is, of course, thinking David's luck's bound to, ab- bound to run out. And so I won't kill him, but if I send him out to kill a hundred Philistines, eventually one of them surely will take him down. But of course the Lord was with him. There's an application there. The whole time David has an attempt on his life, the whole time David is walking under the favor of God. And chapters 18 and 19 are about Saul's murderous attempts and David just walking under the favor of God. The more and more Saul tries to get him, the more success David has. Can I just point out a brief application point? When you get to glory, I wonder how much of your life will you look back and realize God was protecting me from so much I didn't even know. I didn't even realize. Sometimes he would give me multiple guardian angels, maybe. I don't know. But how much are we going to be able to say, thank you, Lord? We can only praise him right now for what we see. I wonder if maybe that's the tip of the iceberg from what he has defended us from. We praise him for what he shielded us that we know. But what about what he shielded us from that we don't know? David is walking under the favor, under the shield of God. Well, in chapter 19, verse 1, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm flashing back and forth here, and eventually we'll settle on chapter 20, but uh, 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 in chapter 19, verse 1, you see he turns from sne- being sneaky to openly discussing his plot to kill David. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants, calls a cabinet meeting and says they should kill David. And so begins chapter 19. There are four, no fewer than four miraculous deliverances of David's life. In one case, Jonathan reasons with Saul. In another, David has to dodge a spear again. By the way, is Saul always got a spear in his hand? At some point, can we not disarm this man? You know, like check your weapons at the door, Saul. But at any rate, uh, oh, and in a very exciting scene, you'll need to read just, something just like out of a movie. His wife, Mishal, realizes, hey, Saul's out to get you. So, so lets David out the window and puts an image under the quilt with uh, some goat's hair to make it look like uh, David is still in bed. And meanwhile, David's running for his life. And the most bizarre one, uh, David hangs out with Samuel the prophet. You remember Samuel. He's still alive. He's still around. He goes over to hang out with Samuel. And the spirit, and, and when Saul keeps sending people to come get David, the Spirit of God comes upon them in such a way that they become erratic and, and, and they become uh, almost prophesying and, and taken over by the Spirit. They sends another group, same thing happens. Sends a third group, same thing happens. Saul thinks if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So he comes and the Spirit comes upon him so powerfully that he has this uh, uh, overwhelming uh, uh, reaction and, and begins prophesying and, and, and it's, it's crazy you can read it he, 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 he takes his clothes off and the Bible says that he's there naked under uh, this influence and therefore is no threat to David so what's going to happen when Saul comes out from under that influence and gets his clothes back on well David is not going to stick around to find out <laughs> he's out of here but where can he go where can he go that's safe the king is out to get him where, where can he go now Let's pause and apply this to you. Where are the safe places in your life? Where can you go? You know, you think about somebody like a brave warrior David taking down the giant, and yet here he is alone and on the run. How quickly life is like that, isn't it? That we go from being so brave and on top of everything to feeling alone and on the run. You can go from being on top to feeling all alone and scared, almost like that. So where can David go? And when that happens to you, 
Where can you go that is safe? Where's that safe place? Well, the safe place for David is the same as for you. The safe place you can go is found in a relationship where there's this word. How do you spell security? It's an eight-letter word. You spell it like this. Covenant. Covenant. That's the theme of today. That's what I want to talk about. That may not excite you very much. You say, oh, the sermon's on covenant. The topic of covenant. Big deal. Covenant. Huge deal. This is a covenant is your safe place. A covenant is security. Covenant is a Bible word, but we use it in modern English too. It just means a promise, a solemn commitment. So David goes back to the place where a covenant promise was made to him by none other than his friend, and it's the king's own son, Jonathan. One more flashback, and then we'll get to, ver- then we'll get to chapter 20. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, I want to show you where Jonathan made this covenant. This is right after the defeat of Goliath. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. There's that word. Because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now this covenant means these two guys, David and Jonathan, they became more than just, you know, buddies. You know, they like the same movies. They both like golf. You know, all right, we'll hang out. No, it was much deeper. They may have had some things in common, but no, no, no. Think about it. Why was Jonathan's soul knit to David? To me, it makes all the sense in the world. Where else? Everybody remembers the story of David and Goliath. Where else? Show me one other time in 1 Samuel where we've seen that kind of bravery, that kind of trust in the Lord. Wasn't it a few chapters ago? I saw it one other time when Jonathan says to his armor bearer, were you here for this? Do you remember this sermon? When Jonathan says to his armor bearer, hey, I know there's a garrison of Philistines over there, but can anything deliver the can anything stop the lord from delivering by many or by few let's go climb down mount slippery and up mount thorny and let's take them out why cuz nothing can hinder the lord and i think jonathan's going does anybody else have faith in god like this is there anybody who gets it does anybody look around and go hey the living god is for us who can be against us and when he sees david he thinks now this guy gets me You have a covenant friend. Friendship is like that, isn't it? Friendship is like that. You have to be friends with your family. That's biological. That's necessity. But friendship is so beautiful because you don't have to. You want to. A friend is somebody you meet and you go, you think that too? You you see that too? Huh. Huh. I always thought I was the only one. You meet somebody who's like, yeah, this person, they get me. I get them. And his faith in the Lord, really, there's some foreshadowing here. Look at what Jonathan does. He takes off the robe and the armor. Remember, he's the one with the armor. What, what, what are these things represent? These are kingly garments. His robe, this is it. I'm, he's the crown prince. And he's giving what he's next in line for the kingdom by all cultural uh, uh, narratives. And yet he takes that robe and all that kingly garments and he bestows it on David. That's foreshadowing. I think he recognizes the spirit has departed dad and anointed David. And and Jonathan, you'll see, is sort of enmeshed in this narrative all about divided loyalties. He wants to be a good son to Saul, but he cuts this covenant with David. Well, anyway, that faithfulness. When David is in confusion and trouble and his world is disintegrating, there's one spot of sanity, one refuge still intact, and it's his covenant with Jonathan. There, David could expect faithfulness. I want to point out four things about covenant in this chapter, uh, chapter 20. The first is this. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. They all begin the covenant. 
The covenant is a safe place in uncertainty. Just four propositions about covenant. The first is, it is a safe place in uncertainty. You need that. These are uncertain times. You need a place that is rock solid. The covenant is where you find that. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 20, I promise I won't make you flip back and forth anymore. Stay in 20, and we'll work our way through these four points. The first being, it's a safe place in uncertainty. 20, verse 1, then David fled from Naoth and Ramah. Remember, that's where Samuel was and the prophets. And came and said before Jonathan... What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? In other words, is there something I don't know about? Some secret offense that I'm not aware of? He's out to kill me. And sweet Jonathan. Jonathan is, I think, a little naive. And Jonathan said to him, verse 2, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. In other words, if dad were out to kill you, he, he would have told me. I always want to be like, well, you know, in chapter 19, he, he literally did tell you. <laughs> he was out to kill you. But I think Jonathan, once, once Jonathan talked him off the ledge that first time, he thinks problem solved. Oh, Jonathan, I think you're being a little naive. We all have that friend, don't we? Do you ever have that friend who's so impossibly nice? They're so nice to everybody. The problem is they think the whole world is just as nice as they are. And so they can't imagine why anybody would do that. And I always want to be like, because not everyone is angelic like you. <laughs> right? That's how Jonathan is. I think Jonathan's such a, a, a kind, generous soul that he just assumes he needs to be, you know, he needs to, he needs to be a little bit more like his sister, Michal. She's the one who's like, no, dad is psychotic and he's trying to kill you. Go out the window. I'll cover for you. <laughs> a little less naive. Well, David breaks the news gently to Jonathan and, and David vowed again saying, um, yeah, I think it's more like this. Your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. In, in other words, I, I think he knows we have a covenant friendship and he knows if he tells you it's not going to work out, you know, his plan to kill me. So I think he's hiding it from you, John. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I'm telling you the truth, there is but a step between me and death. Uh, now, he uses a phrase here. I, I love that phrase. There's a step between me and death. That is both metaphorically true and, in this case, literally true. Metaphor meaning I, I don't know where Saul is going to strike next, but literally the spear was coming at me one step away. <laughs> I was a step away from death. I will not resist the temptation in this moment to point out a pastoral application. Who of us is that not true of? One step between us and eternity. It's true of all of us. You know, the old time evangelists sort of get a hard time. You know, we kind of pick on them. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? The ones that would come to revival? And man, that got you so scared. You if you were to die in your sleep tonight. Do you know? I mean, looking at kids, do you know, do you know, do you know where you'd go if you go? Do you know where you'd go if you go? I remember like, I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I am not going to sleep tonight. You know, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, we give them a hard time because of that kind of, that kind of preaching. You, if you were to walk out of these doors tonight and be run over by a Mack truck on Highway 31, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And we give them a hard time for that. Here's the problem with that. They're also not wrong, are they? They're not. What's more important than realizing all of us are but one step between death? And when you close your eyes in death, 
Here's what you're going to need. You're going to need a covenant friendship that is stronger than death. Now, where are you going to find one of those? You're going to need a covenant friendship that is stronger than death. Well, David had a covenant friendship with Jonathan, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. But verse 4, Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. So they hatch a plan, right? One last test to discern Saul's true feelings toward David. David said to Jonathan, all right. Here's what we're going to do. We need, we need a test to figure out if maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Saul has forgiven me and maybe it, was just a, maybe it was just part of his darkness and depression. All right, one last test. Behold, tomorrow's the new moon, some sort of an, uh, a monthly feast that they would have. And I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. Now, if your father misses me at all, then say, um, yeah, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. Yeah, there's like a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. That's a lie, by the way. And uh, here you need to know, the Bible is not recommending the telling of lies. It is reporting the telling of lies. I think some people get confused when they come to the Bible. 1 Samuel 20 is not an ethics textbook. It is a recording of history. This is what happened. The Bible's not saying this is what should have happened or what he should have done or what he should not have done. It's saying this is what, this is what happened. Now, <clears throat> so tell this lie. And if he says... Good, then it'll be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. David here brings up the word that I've been coming back to. It's the theme of this covenant, the safe place, verse 8. Here's why I want you to do this. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. This phrase, deal kindly, it's translated here, deal kindly. You could also say, show faithfulness, show mercy, do faithfulness to your servant. It's a word that's used over and over in the Old Testament. It's over 250 times in the Old Testament. Do you know this word? The Hebrew word for faithfulness, steadfast love, it's the word chesed, chesed. It's fun to say, chesed, right? H-E-S-E-D, and I guess transliterated, chesed. It means the, it's not just love, it's the steadfast love of God. It's the loyal love. The, the love that will, will be translated mercy or loving kindness or faithful love or steadfast love. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in chesed. Rich in this steadfast love. There's a little Bible that uh, 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 Miss Rebecca gives out to some of the, the, the children. That, uh, I forget, some presentation for children. We've used it for our children when they were little. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And every time they translate, I said, I love this. They translate it, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's good, isn't it? That's, God, that's what God has set upon you. That's, his, that's covenant love. Now, let's apply this. David, in a time of great trouble, turns to the never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreakable, always-and-forever love of Jonathan. And that is meant to encourage us today, believers. When you are in trouble, you turn to the one safe place is still the covenant love of God. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but you need to know. You need to run into the arms of Jesus. It is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreakable always and forever love it is a tenacious love it is a relentless love it is a love that will not let you go do you know that hymn did any, do anybody remember that old hymn oh love that will not let me go it's written in the 1800s by a guy named george matheson when george matheson was 20 years old he uh, discovered he was going blind he was engaged to be married and when his fiance discovered he was going blind she said i couldn't uh, I, I can't do this i can't be married uh, to a blind man and leaves her 
His sister, Matheson's sister, becomes his caregiver. And he preaches and writes as a great theologian, all while blind. That sister cares for him for 20 years. And when he was 40 years old, that sister got engaged to be married. And though it broke her heart, she, and obviously she has her own life and she needs to leave him and, and go uh, be married. And on the night before her wedding, he contemplated, sitting there blind, alone, that he had lost his fiancée 20 years ago. And now, though he was happy for his sister, he's losing this great friend, this sister and great friend and helper. And in the darkness of that night, he wrote that hymn. He said it's the only one he wrote once and never edited, and he wrote it in five minutes. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer fuller be he knew when all other lights flicker out there was a love that would never let him go that's hesed that's covenant love that's faithful love it's a safe place in uncertainty well back to the plan and back to the next point verse 10 then david said to jonathan well who will tell me how are we going to know how so that's, that's Saul's going to react one way or another. But how am I going to get the message? You can't just text me. We don't have phones yet. So who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And, David, and Jonathan said to David, I, you imagine here he kind of looks around and thinks, hmm, Saul may have henchmen everywhere. Come, let's go out into the field. Let's go somewhere we can speak privately. And so they both go out into the field. And this is very interesting. Verses 12 through 17, do not advance the plot. You could pick up verse 18 and go right along with the story. But they're here to show us how unusual and remarkable and countercultural this faithful covenant is. And that's the second thing I want you to write down. One, covenant is the safe place in uncertainty. But two, it runs utterly counter to our culture. Covenant, that kind of love, if it feels weird or unusual, it's because it is. You don't see this in our culture. Watch what Jonathan says. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 12, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed toward David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm? Oh, the Lord do so to Jonathan more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. This is very strange language. But David's the one who's scared. And yet Jonathan says, you know what it reminds me of? Jonathan basically says, Rem- remember me. What? what are you talking about? You're the crown prince. You have all the power. And yet he looks at the little shepherd boy from Bethlehem and almost it's like he says, it reminds me, well, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, there's a verse loaded in irony. He's saying the Lord's going to cut off every one of your enemies. And who's his number one enemy right now? His own father. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, I only point this out to show you how utterly unusual this is every crown prince in the ancient near east knows this you can even look at the events that i was kind of thinking i was reading in the paper about the uh, what's happening in sri lanka and the, you know the coup and here you got a president running for his life and you, you know everybody knows the, the you know whether it's the middle east or, or whether it's even there's biblical record of this but when a crown prince comes to power the name of the game is purge <laughs> any threat to the throne gets cut off 
literally executed. Uh, one um, uh, commentary called it solidification by liquidation. <laughs> Everybody knew it. Jonathan knew if he is, when he ascends to the throne, he knew the first that would have to go would be David. You can see it coming a mile away. Everybody knows it. Everybody does it. Well, almost. David wouldn't. Jonathan wouldn't to David, and David wouldn't to Jonathan, because it seems covenant conquered culture. Covenant love was stronger than prevailing cultural notions. Let me say that again, and you apply it to 2022. Covenant love was stronger than culture. They had made commitments uh, you could apply this in a million ways. Christians keeping an unprofitable business going to provide jobs for long-serving employees. Church members pulling together during a difficult time of transition or pain. Taking a costly stand for God's word despite the scorn of others. For many of us, the most natural place to apply this would be those marriage vows we took. For some of us, years ago. For some of us, years and years ago. But I always tell couples... I often tell couples in a marriage sermon, I say, hey, you're about to take vows that run counter to culture. Because culture says, celebrate the love you have now. Hmm? Celebrate what you have. Culture has no problem with love. You love each other, that's great. Celebrate what you have. Why? Because you never know when things change. People change. Circumstances change. So celebrate the love you have now, but when things change, you know, you never know. A marriage vow, a Christian marriage vow is very different. It's built on change. A Christian marriage vow is not a celebration of current love. It is a promise for future love. In other words, think about the way they're worded. In sickness and in health. So 50 years from now, can you imagine a bride and groom standing here looking at each other all starry-eyed and romantic? What they're about to promise is built on some really, if you, if you read those vows, it's built on some really bad stuff happening. It's sort of banking on it in sickness or in health. So, honey, in 50 years, when you're the picture of perfect health, I just want you to know I've got a vow to be faithful to you. But if you lose all your health, you mark it down. On the day you get that terrible doctor's report, go ahead, put it on the counter now. Sight unseen. Carte blanche. Put it on the counter. On the day you get that terrible health report, you've got an appointment to me. If you lose, and it, for richer, for poorer. If you make a million dollars, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful to you. Or if we lose everything on the day the stock market crashes and we go bankrupt and you lose everything, you put it down. I've already got it on my calendar. On that day when you lose everything, you will not lose me. Why? Because I made a promise. See? For richer, for poorer. It's built on change. Commitment, covenant love doesn't change even when the circumstances under which that promise was made change. They remain. And that's based in God's covenant love to you. Circumstances come and go. But look at Calvary's cross. It's a love that will not let you go. It's countercultural. I get it. Well, the third point, we've got, we've got to move forward here. The uh, uh, covenant may demand costly commitment. So I, I tried to point out that it, it, it's a safe place in uncertainty. It runs countercultural, and it may demand very costly commitment. It's one thing to, to make these vows. It's another to fulfill them. It's one thing to make these covenants, Jonathan to David. It's another to fulfill. Then Jonathan said to him, all right, here we go. Tomorrow's the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. So don't think like Saul won't notice. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you, where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I'll send the boy. Apparently he had somebody help him with, with his hunting. And say, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. 
Then you're to come, for as the Lord lives, that's the signal, right? It's safe for you, there's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are behind you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So they develop a little spy tradecraft there. And then the fateful day of the feast arrives, verse 24. David hid himself, so David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, hmm, something's happened to him. Yeah, he is not clean. Surely he's not clean. That doesn't mean he forgot to wash his hands before dinner. Go back to Leviticus. It means something has happened to him to make him ceremonially unclean. And if you're ceremonially unclean, according to the law, you can't be at this new moon party. And so he says, well, happens to all of us. He must have, you know, was walking along the road and he, you know, hit a, a dead carcass of some roadkill and whoops. And now I'm ceremonially unclean. He's faithful to the law. I'm sure that's all it is. He must be ceremonially unclean. By the way, don't you love this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, David's probably not here because he's ceremonially unclean. It can't be the fact I've tried to kill him four times. <laughs> like at some point. Like, wouldn't you think Saul would be like, well, it could be that. could be that. Anyway, on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. Now Saul knows something's up because in 24 hours, the, the uncleanness thing would be gone. Now something's fishy. Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why is not the son of Jesse come to the meal? Won't even call him David. Either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered Saul, yeah, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, which right there, like why would he ask Jonathan? The king grants leave at his table, not Jonathan. Anyway, he said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brothers commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, you know, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. Comes the fateful moment. How will Saul respond? You know how. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Now that's not very nice. In fact here, what we all know, what he's showing, is not, his mama's got nothing to do with this. The fact is, we all know that Jonathan is in fact the son of a perverse rebellious man, isn't he? And he's revealed in reactions like this. And in one of the most pitifully tragic moments, Saul basically says, you've, cho you've chosen your covenant faithfulness over a kingdom. Your little friendship has cost you a kingdom. Look at what he says. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, in other words, as long as David's alive, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. So you think, yeah, I'm doing this for you, Jonathan. David's got to go or you'll never have a kingdom. And as long as you have it, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. So send him and, br send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. The problem, of course, is Saul thinks that Jonathan thinks like Saul thinks and that this would be attractive to him. But Jonathan doesn't have the mind of Saul. You're trying to attract me with a kingdom? What about what God is doing? Then Jonathan answered Saul's father, why should he put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan's like, so I'm taking this as a no. <laughs> Again, we've got to disarm this guy. Does he constantly eat with one hand on his spear? Anyway, so Jonathan knew that his father, I'd say, was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food for the second, the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. 
I just want you to see, it turns out Jonathan would remain faithful to covenant even if it cost him the goodwill of his father. I think Jonathan would have understood Jesus when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and his own life, cannot be my disciple. I think he would have understood exactly. Commentators try to soften this. Preachers try to lessen it. You can't. It's a hard word from Jesus. But here you see, loyalty to covenant, in this case, even had to trump faithfulness and piety as a son. What is the application for modern believers? We may not be the crown prince. We may not be the anointed one of Israel. But the reigning passion of your life cannot be just to make your way, to make your living, to make your mark, to gain your place, or to get ahead. No, no, no. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. And finally, we come to the emotional ending of this text, and it is emotional. And you can imagine the pain and the tears. After this, Jonathan and David, if you're curious, they will meet one more time on the field of battle. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy, and he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. And you guys already know, the reader already knows the signal. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place, the arrow Jonathan shot. Jonathan called after the boy and said, uh, No, is, is, is not the arrow beyond you? Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, don't stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, uh, Go, carry him to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground, bowed three times. They kissed one another, wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we, both, we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And the final point I want to make about covenant in closing is just covenant provides peace in the middle of confusion peace that last verse verse 42 doesn't that touch your heart go in peace now on the surface <laughs> that seems almost laughable go in peace my father is out to kill you he actually attempted murder on my life because of my defense for you uh, the kingdom is going to be in utter shambles the spirit has departed Saul so uh, you are now going to be homeless and on the run and probably for the rest of your life um, have peace it seems laughable, and it would be laughable, but he's serious. Why? How is he able to say that? Well, we know how. He is able to speak peace to David and mean it, not because of his circumstances, but because of a covenant. Everything may fall apart, but it's going to be right between you and me forever. And I said earlier that um, that would be the... David and Jonathan would meet only one more time on the field of battle, but that's not really true, is it? What a reunion it must have been in glory. Can you imagine, in the new heaven, new earth, as we look around the saints of God, that great cloud of witnesses, I bet David and Jonathan will be standing side by side. Why? Peace forever. Now let's apply this. Jesus said in John 16, you may have peace. Even though in the world you will have trouble, you may have peace. Circum peace is not when circumstances are tranquil. Peace is when you and God are right. When you're right with God, no matter what else happens, all these circumstances, the believer can walk in peace because things are peaceful between you and God. I, I love this. Go in peace 
because the Lord shall be between me and you. There is peace with God because of Jesus and his covenant love. If you doubt that he has established his peace with you, then you have not been listening at the Lord's Supper. (laughs) Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Our true and better Jonathan, the Lord Jesus Christ, has promised his peace to us, his covenant people. And that's why wherever you are this morning, whatever circumstances you're going through, you can walk in his peace. Musician's going to come and lead us in a time of response. For this invitation, I just want you to consider. I've tried to say over and over, and I I find myself like a broken record in 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, but but hopefully a broken record that uh, plays that good old gospel music, and you want to hear it over and over. But can't you see? In 1 and 2 Samuel, it seems to me that every page whispers the name of Jesus. It's almost like every page is pointing you to Jesus. And you come to a story like this where you got this guy, Jonathan, who's willing to give up all the accolades of being a king. He literally strips himself of his robe and he bestows it on David. He he takes off his weapons and he bestows it to David. He takes off his kingdom and gives it to David. And and he's he's got every sort of right, if you will, to be king. Now, who does that sound like? Out of covenant love, The great king from Bethlehem, our true and better Jonathan in this case, Jesus, Philippians 2 says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He gave up everything. Jesus, you would give up all this kingly glory. He said, I would give up the universe before I lost one of you. Why? Because that's how the never-stopping, never-ending, unbreakable, always-and-forever love of God works. It's called covenant. Rest in that. Walk in that. Though it costs you, live in that covenant peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the covenant love of David and Jonathan. How good friendship is. We know that even at a on, a, on, a, on an earthly level, we know how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters can live together in unity and friendship. But God, how sweet when we think of David and Jonathan pointing us to the ultimate covenant love you have for your children. And thank you that it is a love that will not let us go. I pray for anybody who feels let go, for anybody who feels forsaken, for anybody who's walking through some dreadful circumstances that they would find peace Not in their circumstances, but in the covenant, always and forever, love of God. If anyone here doesn't yet know you, or if they watch this message online and they don't know you, that today they would receive you as Lord and Savior, they would reach out to you, they'd be written into this great covenant love story, all by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.